The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and thank you for joining us on the AI Today podcast. Now, we have a special little treat for you today. Uh, because we had a panel recently at our Enterprise Data and AI event, where we had some project managers who were doing and implementing AI share with us their tips and ideas on best practices in AI project management. And now this is part of our Enterprise Data and AI web series. So we have a web event series called Enterprise Data and AI. So this was live and this was done. Uh, they were on Zoom and it was broadcasted to our website. And you can actually go uh, watch this session if you want to see the visual version of this. There really weren't too many slides or anything to see here. It was just a panel conversation, but you could see their faces. So if you go to the enterprise data and AI event and look for the best practices and AI project management event from September 1st, 2022, you'll hear this fantastic panel. And we thought this panel was so great that we wanted to share the audio of the panel portion of this event with our AI Today podcast listeners. So on this, you'll hear my co-host, Kathleen Walsh, who is the moderator and uh, facilitating the interactions with the audience. And we had three fantastic guests. We had Charles Mendoza, who is Senior Director, Operational Analytics and Data Science at Maximus. He's actually since uh, moved to another job at CircleCI. Then we have uh, Christine Jennings, who goes by KJ, who is the Project Lead Business Systems Analyst at healthcare company Centene Corporation, and Andrew Stone, who you may have heard recently because we had him on his own little podcast here, who's a lead specialist of product owner data science at Maximus. And the interaction was just fantastic. So I would say listen uh, to this podcast. Uh, we've done our best to clip the audio so that it's just the relevant portions from the panel, but it's a solid conversation. So, and we had some really good questions from our uh, audience as well that we've left in. So you can hear kind of what they're asking. Um, they were typing in the questions and Kathleen was speaking them so that they can hear it. So listen to this podcast and uh, with this interview with this, uh, this, these panel and uh, hopefully you'll enjoy it on camera. So with that, um, Thank you so much, panelists, for joining us. I'm so excited that you're able to be here today. And I'd like to start by having you introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background and your current role at your organization. Andrew, why don't we start with you? Hello, everybody. Good morning. Um, so I have been at Maximus for nearly five years. I think October is my five-year mark. I am the product owner for the uh, data science team. I've, I've been working with this group for several months now, previously working in the business intelligence arm of the house, focused on some major projects and improving their um, reporting capabilities. Uh, we are focused primarily on speech analytics these days and transcribing um, conversations between callers and agents and understanding the nature of those conversations. Uh, what, what are they talking about? How do they feel about them? Uh, especially with the recent pandemic, the conversations have been very interesting to see the, the markers on the news being reflected in the conversations that we're having with our with our customers. And uh, this this methodology, this conversation, this this framework has been very useful in organizing work and structuring our thinking. So I'm excited to talk with everybody about how we do that and our our kind of new approach to this. 
Perfect. And KJ, we'll have you go next. Sure. Hi. Good morning, everyone. Um, as Caitlin, uh, Kathleen uh, had mentioned, I do apologize. I'm a little under the weather this morning, but my legal name is Christine Jennings. However, I go by KJ for short, my initials. And um, as far as what I do, I currently work for Centene, uh, which is a healthcare uh, health insurance organization. And I lead and oversee the product development designing processes. Um, I also manage relationships and implementation strategy for our uh, enterprise data science and engineering team. Uh, as far as my background goes, I've kind of have a split background where I spent six years in banking and five years in healthcare. Uh, the first six years I spent in and around uh, technical credit card payment processing implementations, um, also as an analyst uh, investigating and, and analyzing client transactional data, internal operations data, and uh, global anti-money laundering uh, reporting to federal regulators and our global anti-money laundering committee. And within healthcare, uh, I focus, I well, I used to focus on compliance auditing, um, technical implementations, and uh, process re-engineering. But as I mentioned, uh, currently, I focus a lot on the AI product uh, and machine learning products that we have within our org. All right, great. And Charles, please introduce yourself. Thanks. Thanks, Kathleen. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Charles Mendoza. Um, I'm the Senior Director of Operational Analytics and Data Science at Maximus. And I oversee um, a large organization that uh, drives um, operations forward through uh, BI and data science. So like Andrew was saying, we focus on NLP um, from a data science perspective, and um, we also deploy BI solutions for stakeholders across the enterprise. Um, so my background, uh, I've been in this space, the analytics space for about 15 years. And uh, academically, I'm also in candidacy for in computer science, uh, focusing my research in machine learning at uh, University of Arkansas. All right, great. So I want to get started talking about challenges that you see at you know at your organization when you're running projects as well. So what challenges do you see managing data and AI projects? And KJ, we'll start with you. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple challenges if you look at it from both sides, whether it be business or technical. Um, you know, I think Kathleen, we had previously talked on a podcast and I'll mention here because I love the phrase. Uh, a, a colleague of mine refers to uh, folks who say we're doing voodoo math. Right. Um, I just love that phrase because I think it's hilarious. It's and it's so true. Right. So um, that, you know, from a business perspective, we may not. Um, have business owners or folks in the organization that um, necessarily understand the work that we do or what we're trying to accomplish and how we do it. And so there's, you know, some fear around that. Um, additionally, you know, when you look at the expectations of delivery, right, um, you have clients who are used to uh, kind of the business, the normal business standard, which is I asked for something and I meant that I wanted it two days ago. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that just really does not work um, with AI development projects, right? Because we try to be as thoughtful as we can with regards to um, forming our uh, problem statements accurately, making sure the data matches what we're trying to ask, and, and also that we're not unintentionally harming groups with bias, um, you know, with the work that we're doing. And so, taking those extra precautionary steps means that you have to slow down. And sometimes business owners don't um, understand that right away, but, you know, that's up to us, you know, to explain that to them and, and to show them the value. And then from like a, per, you know, technical perspective, um, 
being able to manage that engagement, right? Being the being able to be effective at your work and also uh, working with the client and level setting expectations. So that duality of project management, if you will, relationship management, while also trying to be the data scientist or you know machine learning engineer. Um, it's like you're asking someone to basically have a split personality in a way. Um, and so they have to switch back and forth between that. So, um, you know, that's a challenge. And then also just how we work together efficiently with IT. So um, like within my organization, we have a wonderful relationship between data science and the IT organization. Um, but before we engage together on, on this journey, it mm-hmm. wasn't... Um, it wasn't as uh, put together as it is now and, and uh, streamlined. And so, you know, just figuring out a good way to do that and CPMAI definitely helps uh, that certification and that knowledge base just helps uh, to integrate the two together. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, from, from challenges perspective, uh, that's what I see. And uh, I will say, uh, you know, again, that we have a lot of very intelligent people all around business, uh, technical and data scientists. And, um, you know, it's just a matter of how do we come together? And, and again, CPMI, I definitely think uh, does a good job of showing you that. Perfect. You know, we like to talk about challenges because I think sometimes people think their challenges are unique to them or maybe some of the issues that they have. And when you look at it from a more, from a broader perspective, you know, maybe specifically what your challenge is might be, you know, specific to your group or your organization. But if you just open up a little bit more broadly, you'll see that there are these common challenges. And I think that people can, uh, you know, once you understand that, you can really come together and learn from that. So, you know, from the Maximus perspective, what challenges do you see managing data and AI projects? Maybe Charles, we'll start with you. Yeah, so I, there, we re- I resonate a bit with what KJ is saying. There, there is some fear on the from the perspective that um, we are pioneering uh, an emerging technology within Maximus. And so some people who may not understand deeply how um, the word, how artificial intelligence works, when you say it, it sounds like the machine can do all of these things that automatically it's intelligent and it, it, it can uh, predict results. But um, there is a fear behind that thinking that, uh, or not being able to trust trust the machine, but. Um, getting people to understand the technology to embrace uh, the power of solving problems, um, just getting past that that fear base, I think, is one of the challenges. And then, um, of course, there's there's always the data challenge where we have, <clears throat> excuse me, we also have um, issues with um, battling, which are good issues. They're you know battling things like PHI. Uh, we did have a um, a project that came up as an idea where maybe we could try to understand um, more about client engagements if if we could look at emails. But um, you know, there's obviously a significant amount of challenges with PHI and PII uh, looking at emails, and so there's a bit of a, a mess in trying to get to that. But uh, the viability of that problem, solving that problem through that method might have been good, but, um, you know, we've got some significant blockers in that space and rightfully so. But, you know, nonetheless, it's still a challenge in, ter- in terms of getting a project off the ground that we have to deal with from a data science perspective. And Andrew, I'd love your thoughts on this. So both KJ and Charles talked about the fear and kind of the relationship people have with math. And I think that it's a cultural thing in, in many cases. It's um, how we were educated. But our relationship with math and with technology itself is complicated. 
And when you're talking about advancing decision-making and having a machine make decisions in a different way than a human does, there's a natural fear that goes along with that. And so part of the challenge we have is to build in trust that um, we're not making decisions for people, we're supporting people's ability to make decisions. And that relationship, that personal relationship of trust and building that conversation with, um, with our stakeholders is extremely important. And most of our clients, our, our, our contract clients, are state contracts, federal agencies. So they themselves have a very slow-moving advancement towards technology gains and um, innovation. So we have to we have to partner with them to grow both our own organization and their organization and the understanding of how technology and, and science works to help them improve their decision making. And that's okay. not an easy conversation, not at all. So having a framework that crosses um, functions and organizations and lines of business that allows us to talk in about the the process of solving problems with this technology in a in a in a clear way is is a huge step towards building that trust. Yeah, I like that you brought up the fact that it is not easy always to have these conversations within these different groups. And and before I go ahead and um, go to the next question, I will just stop the screen share um, since uh, we are the audience gets to see bottom thirds, we pull up your name and title when you're talking and answering the questions. So I don't know that the slide's helping too much. So I'm going to go into this view, but um, yeah, you know, it, and it isn't easy. And I think that additionally, uh, that's, that's why, you know, methodologies help. It, it helps you really understand how to talk to these different groups, because when you're talking to, you know, uh, IT, or you're talking to developers, or you're talking to the business side, you do need to kind of translate what's going on. So that's, you know, helpful here. Now, since you have run projects and all of you have, you know, very varied backgrounds and uh, lots of experience, which is wonderful, what insights and lessons learned do you have for others who are looking to run AI projects? So, you know, at organizations, some people are like, yeah, we have a few AI projects under our belt. We feel really confident. Other ones are saying, you know, we're just starting our first one. And, and some organizations haven't even begun yet. They're just thinking about it. So maybe what insights and lessons learned do you have? And uh, Charles, we'll start with you. Yeah, I, I would say um, I, I would bring a bit of my background from business intelligence and IT to the table. Uh, the patterns, the, the the methods that I've used is it's it's not different in the sense it's different because it's a different domain, but um, bringing the business along and partnering through the process of operationalizing something in the AI space, whether you're you're um, uh, creating a model that can um, topic mine your calls um, or do sentiment analysis that should be as as you're going through the process of doing the development and making sure that that's going to be a product that uh, your stakeholders can use they should be involved in the process from um, from day one and understanding that i think that gets over a bit of the fear aspect that we touched on um, in the last question and gives them um, uh, a better understanding or a deeper understanding of how things work um, they feel like they're contributing to the journey of getting to that point of finishing the project and i feel like stakeholders contribute more and the more that stakeholders contribute and they feel like they're part of the process the um, it enriches the overall development process process, whether it's not just AI and ML, but um, in any development space, I feel like. 
Perfect. And Andrew, I'd like your thoughts on this. So I think that data science particularly is a problem of too many options, too many ways to solve a problem, too many things that you could do. So start simple. Find a question that you can't solve with people alone um, that is particularly vexing to your organization and focus there. Start with a, a simple question. What are our callers telling us? How do they feel when they talk to us? That is, it's a very profound question. It's an important question, but it's really difficult to answer. You can listen to people call. You can have a whole group of people listening to people talking to callers, or you can use science to do that. But when you, when you interpret that data, when you get the answers, you have to understand that it's a human interaction to begin with. It's a conversation that isn't structured, that isn't necessarily logical or in order. So all of those things together mean that you have to, you have to sit at the same side of the table. The math, the science, the data, the IT, the business people, the agents who are talking, you all have to, you have to be aligned in the questions that you're answer, that you're asking and how you can answer that question. So as Carl said, if they be, your stakeholders become part of not only the question, but part of the problem solving. And they understand along the journey how you're walking together to get to that answer. All right, perfect. So, you know, we've talked about challenges. We've talked about insights and lessons learned that you've had from, uh, you know, running AI projects that you can share with others. Now, specifically talking about CPM AI methodology, how has that helped you manage and run data and AI projects? KJ, let's start with you. Yeah, I think uh, the CPMAI really gave a, a great framework and vision for, or roadmap, if you will, right, of how the AI projects would be best handled. Every single project, I mean, I think with my experience, one thing I didn't mention earlier is that I do have a background as a PMP um, and also uh, with uh, process improvement, uh, Greenbelt certification. So one of the things that um, is important is that you give your customers a good vision because there's something that's called apophenia. I don't know if you've ever heard of it in psychology where we fill in the blanks of missing information. And when we don't give our customers a good vision and know what to expect, they start filling in the blanks. So if you if you really add that to this idea of fear, right, where people don't know what to expect, they don't have a good roadmap, they start filling in the blanks with the worst, and you don't get as good an interaction as Charles was saying, with your customers hand in hand. So we don't want them to have that apophenia, right? We want to give them that roadmap, that guide of what to expect. And CPMAI does a really great job of laying it out and how we should um, let our customers know what to expect. Yeah, that's really, really great to hear. Um, Andrew, I'd love your thoughts on this question. So there's two pillars of this methodology that are particularly interesting and important to me. One is the, um, the idea of transparency and understanding exactly what the model is doing and what it isn't doing and how we can interpret it, how it should be used, what are the risks involved, how much care has been taken into the, uh, the handling of the security of the data, the, the privacy information, the health information, especially when we deal with um, 
the, the kind of work that Maximus does. And the second is the, the ethical side and the use of uh, machine learning artificial intelligence. And we've been taught through movies. I mean, there's a whole slew of movies that tell us how bad artificial intelligence is or could be. And so there's, we're, we as a culture are taught to fear this. So to face that head on and say, this is the lens we look at this through. These are the challenges that we have addressed from the beginning throughout our process in order to care for the data, to care for the decisions, to make sure that there's a human involved um, when, it's in, when uh, it's appropriate to be. That, that continuously builds trust yet again. And, and fights against that kind of pop culture idea that, you know, we've got a Terminator, no, there's Skynet. And, you know, so um, it, it's a challenge. It's a fine line to walk there. But if you start with the idea that we're, we're working to enhance a human's ability to make decisions and we're building tool sets to help us do that, then that, for me, that helps lessen the fear. That helps the conversation be more about solving the problem, not fighting against the solution because we're afraid of the possibilities of the solution. Yeah, that's really great insights. And Charles, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, um, th- there's uh, what KJ said about filling in the blanks. I think uh, that's that's definitely important. Um, um, mm-hmm. My answer is really a bit of both where all of that combined, both of those, uh, what you heard from Andrew and KJ are, it creates this consistency. So it fills in the blanks, gets people to understand how it helps them make decisions. But this consistency that I'm talking about is we're talking the same language. So if we have, we also at, at Maximus have some um, not technical people also take the certification. Um, and so when we're communicating, we have a, a channel, you know, we're speaking the same language for the most part. You know, we understand um, the aspects of, of a project, the terminologies we're using, and that makes that makes things easier. You know, people don't fill in the blanks, like KJ is saying, and we can uh, communicate more effectively effectively on, on what we're trying to accomplish. You know, that's great to hear. It's nice to hear how it's used in practice, right? Because that's the point of this. So it is for everybody. There's no prerequisites that are required. You don't need to be technical to get CPMAI certified. And I think that that can be really helpful for organizations because sometimes there's barriers, right? And this helps break that down. This helps you talk in the same language so that you really are understanding what's going on. So nice to hear that that's actually happening in the real world too. Um, now, CPMAI, you know, is built upon best practices. It's, uh, you know, agile. It's based upon CRISPDM, which has been around for decades now. And it's also very complementary to other approaches as well and other methodologies so that this isn't really an either or thing. It can be an and thing, which I know as we continue to talk to organizations, it seems like that's the way that they work. Um, you know, people take a bunch of different methodologies and, you know, they get certified in that and they use that. So how have you leveraged CPMAI methodology alongside other project management, agile, or IT methodologies to help really accentuate and accelerate your AI projects? Charles, maybe we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I would say we we really merged um, some of the methodologies we have uh, that we've learned from CPMI with Agile. The the team currently operates in that framework right now, where we are iterating on um, um, some some methods. I'm trying to be broad here <laughs> on some methods to um, uh, gain efficiency from some processes we have. Um, 
where we, you know, we're, we're working on operationalizing the model, getting that fit for use as a product, and then you um, uh, taking that product for stakeholders to use. And within that, underneath that, we, from a development perspective, we utilize a lot of the aspects from Azure Scrum. All right, perfect. And Andrew, do you have any thoughts to add? So I, I think KJ mentioned she's Greenbelt. Um, I, I, I think that's Six Sigma. I, I worked with Six Sigma um, for much of my career too. What these kind of processes and frameworks do is help us solve problems in a stepwise manner and give us a roadmap in order to make sure that we fully understand the problem, we understand the range of solutions that are available to us and choose the one that is going to be most effective for us. And part of what Six Sigma had a big gap in, in my opinion, was this science layer of the math, the, the artificial intelligence and the, the machine learning, the application. And albeit this was a decade ago, so things have changed a lot since I, I was fully in that process. But the way of thinking through things um, is, is common. It's common across TMP and ChrisDM and Six Sigma um, and Lean especially. So you, you consider the problem first understand it fully, and then apply to, uh, then you start solutioning, get everybody's brain trust. And everybody comes with a different set of tools. And so the challenge is to, to put all of the tools on the table and move forward and have a way to do that. And that's really what Agile comes in and does. Gives us a way to have structured conversations uh, and organize work in a way that we can we can collaborate very effectively together. So I think that it's not a single answer. It's a combination of tool sets and methodologies that help us be effective. Yeah, you know, it's, that's great to hear because that's what we're seeing as well. And KJ, mm -hmm. I'd like your thoughts on this since you, uh, you know, do have other certifications as well. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things that I like to say um, whenever someone's considering <laughs> me as part of their team, right, or, or to be part of their team, I like to say that I am a person who goes into my tool chest and I pull out whatever tools I have, right? Mm -hmm. And those tools, um, as Andrew mentioned, include Lean, Six Sigma, they include the PMP methods, um, mm -hmm. Agile Mail. And so um, relying on those, you know, individual certifications, it, it doesn't answer that neither one of the, or I shouldn't say neither one, but no one by itself answers all the questions. Right. And I think that's what Andrew was trying to get across, right? Exactly. So it is a compliment, like Kathleen said earlier, where, you know, just like when you're going through PMP certifications, you are taught that, hey, every project is different, um, just like every child's different, right? Every person mm -hmm. is different. And you have to use different approaches um, based on what you have at hand. And this is just a toolbox for you to pull out of. And so the way I look at this particular certification is that it's an enhancement to those other two that I already have, um, mainly in the space of like a PMP, because we talk a lot about in, in you know project management world, we, we talked a lot about uh, iterative approach. And so iterative approach is slightly different than agile, right? But in, in essence, what you're talking about is start small and keep adding. And I think right. that's where CPMAI does a good job honing in on that idea of like start small, hone in, make sure what you're doing is right, get your foundations right, and then build upon what you have until you finally have this, you know, robust product to deploy, um, you know, take it in small chunks, so to speak. And so that idea of, 
you know, A, being lean, right? Doing the minimum possible, not putting too much effort towards, um, you know, uh, deploying everything at once. B, being iterative, getting that, as Charles mentioned earlier on a different question, getting that frequent connection and that frequent um, interaction with your business customer for the feedback is super important as you move along, Um, all of which CPMAI uh, lays out. So I just think it's a matter of looking at that as your foundation, and then you take all these other ones and put it together. And I think it's something rather beautiful, to be quite honest. Well, that is great to hear. You know, we always say think big, start small and iterate often. And you're right. That is the approach that you need to take. We have seen far too many organizations want to be agile, want to be iterative, but really they are doing this waterfall approach when it comes to, you know, uh, AI projects or just technology, you know, software development projects. And that obviously is not the the best practices, not the way to do it. And then we also have heard this term agile, where it's, you know, they want to be agile, but they're really taking this waterfall approach. And so it's sort of combining the two. And that's not a, you know, compliment with when you use that term. So Kathleen, uh, can I comment yeah. real quick on something? You sure, just Absolutely. Um, you had mentioned Wagile and I, the first time I actually heard that term was from you and I love it because I've lived the horror of, of that experience. And so just something I wanted to say is that with regards to Wagile specifically, right, you've got to pick one or the other, um, being in this, uh, agile, sometimes agile, sometimes business, um, traditional approach confuses a lot of people. And it doesn't level set expectations. So I just wanted to comment that I think, you know, the CPMAI does a great job of taking that out of the mix and just making it a truly um, iterative approach from day one. Well, perfect. Wonderful to hear. Andrew, it looked like you wanted to say something too. And so it comes back to the simple question that that's really difficult to answer. And if you if you focus on that question, understand the problem understand the possible solutions and how to apply them, then then you've got that that trust from the beginning because it, it always comes back to how do I solve this problem together? And the, the methods you use, I don't think I've ever been in a problem-solving team that used a method purely that followed the rules exactly, that that went through and used every single Six Sigma tool, that used every single PMP um, method and document, that even in the waterfall world, did the BRD magically manifest this beautiful technology that's useful and, and important at the, the very first time you open it? No, it's been a combination of things to solve the problem, but it's the discipline of those conversations and the focus in that discipline that is is important that helps you step through and actually get something done because that's what we're trying to do we're trying to get things done to answer the question and if you've got thousands of tools to use you don't know which one is useful so you the framework helps focus the thinking to focus the conversation the order of operations that's that's why it becomes useful because you can produce something with it you can get things done. You can actually answer the question. How do my callers feel when they talk to my agent? It's it's a very small question that's profound. I agree. You know, and we always, uh, especially a few years ago, 
but I still think that it, it, it's happening today. People always say, well, what do I start with? Do I start with my business, my business understanding, my business needs or my data needs? And we're like, well, what does the methodology say? Methodology says start with your business understanding because mm-hmm. if you're not solving a real problem, what are you doing? Right. And also, you know, we lay out the CPMAI methodology lays out a set of questions that you need to address in each of the six phases. Mm-hmm. Far too often, I think organizations want to just jump forward and move yeah. forward with projects because that's what they're being told to do, or they feel pressured to do it, or you know, for a variety of different reasons. That doesn't normally end up well, but yet we still do it. And so when we when we can take a step back and say, okay, let's actually look at the business problem. What are we trying to solve? Let's take it in a really right start small. Let's take a really small digestible chunk and then move forward with that you will start seeing success. You will get that ROI that you're looking for. You're going mm-hmm. to you know, see that success and continue to move forward rather than what we're seeing is some of these organizations you know, take that Wagile approach, like I said, or even just a straight waterfall, which I'm like, why are you doing this for AI projects or for you know, a, advanced data analytics, whatever it is? And they're obviously not getting what they want. So you know, the world changes. You can't have, you know, 10, 12, 18 months to deploy a model. Um, and then they wonder why their projects are failing. So it's really nice to hear this, you know, from uh, from the perspective of people that are CPMAI certified and using it in the real world. The next question that I have says, how has CPMAI methodology helped with alignment on AI and advanced data concepts? So kind of adding on to what we just talked about. Charles, let's start with you here. Yeah, and it's. It, I think it boils down to the speaking the same language. Um, you know, something recently we've had to spec out like some costs for how some of these solutions will live. And um, uh, from a cost perspective, you know, we injected a little bit more, and we got questions on, you know, why why is this different from other systems? And so some of that, <clears throat> excuse me, some of that methodology um, uh, allows us to speak the same language when we're defining some of these other things around cost or deploying and what, whatever it might be from a, a business standpoint. And, so, and some of the justification I use as well, you know, we're going to have a little bit more effort because we've got to retrain the model, um, when the data drifts or something like that. Or if we deploy something for another project to Maxis, we have to retrain that model for, um, the data set that they're, they're, they, that they're using and the business problem they've got, even though it's the same model. So that, that 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 takes a little bit more overhead when we're um, uh, creating some of these estimates, but the understanding is, you know, through some of this methodology and certifications existing, those conversations are much easier. It's easier to have where I don't have to, it's not a black box of what's happening inside here that might cost slightly more to deploy versus another solution we might have. Perfect. And Andrew, I'd love your thoughts on this. So I, I'm, I'm new to the certification to the framework. It, it, I, I took about a decade um, hiatus from data science type work. So one of the m- most interesting things from a, a certification standpoint, from the training standpoint, was learning all the new technologies that have been coming along in the last decade. There's a lot that can be done that I didn't know you could do, that I wanted to do then, <clears throat> that we can do now. So part of it was a refresher in what are the, the true capabilities. Um, for our team that, that I work very closely with, I think that we're young and the, the um, ideas of a formal framework, but we're putting in place those things, especially around the transparency aspect 
the documentation of the models, how we talk to people in, in our organization about the work that we've done um, that are very much aligned with the methodology. So that I think that we'll grow organically into a more formal structured way of, of doing this. But it, I think that it's going to take some time and I think that it should take some time. Um, we've got really, really talented data sciences, uh, scientists on our team. Uh, we've got really talented stakeholders who who consume this information and, and the data. But advancing the kind of organizational learning and knowledge and understanding is, is something that you have to do deliberately and you have to do it step by. So I, I don't I don't see it as a, oh, I, I did however many hours of training and now yes, everybody is on the same page. It's not that at all. It's a it's a it's a focused way of thinking and problem solving that that moves this all forward. And as people can see us moving forward, they will adopt that way of thinking even more. It becomes second nature. So I, I, I think it's a slow roll. All right, perfect. So, you know, I know that folks probably now, um, uh, some people that are watching this are CPMAI certified, some maybe are not. So when it comes to, you know, the thing that's nice about CPMAI is it's an individual level certification so that it is for you. And I know that Maximus is investing heavily and many people from your organization are CPMAI certified, which is great, but it still is at that individual level. Mm -hmm. So for folks that are, you know, thinking about CPMAI, for you specifically, in addition to signing up for CPMAI because you wanted to learn best practices for running AI projects, what else was the single most compelling reason or benefit that you found and the reason why you wanted to get CPMAI certified? Uh, Charles, we'll start with you. Um, from our analytics organization perspective, uh, it's it's definitely like it's almost like a brand in a way, you know, where we're, we've got a consistency in the data science and analytics team. Um, we're we're moving forward and trying to pioneer emerging technology with um, credentials. Um, and it it creates this this uh, um, this brand where um, uh, we've we've gone through the motions. We understand best practices. Um, we are trying to pioneer a solution, and we have consistency. So there's there's an aspect of that I think is important, especially as we're standing up new things and new technologies that the business hasn't been exposed to um, as intimately as as other technologies we've been using in the past. Um, it sets a framework for that credibility and. Um, and and that we're you know we're delivering the right solution using the right um, you know the right methodologies. Perfect. And Andrew, you know what was the the main reason in addition to learning uh, you know best practices that you wanted to get CPMAI certified? So so part of it is about credibility and trust and having the training, the education, um, the rigor of thought to to play with the big boys, honestly. Make sure that I am able to help our scientists solve problems, not get in the way with um, with extra stuff that they don't need. To help align what they do with what our stakeholders um, are thinking about. Back to what KJ was saying, I want to make sure that they are not filling in the blanks with stuff that is uh, inappropriate, unethical, or simply wrong, based on what we give to them. So that's. And I think I told you and Ron, I'm very particular about which certifications I apply to my signature. Um, because I think that, that that certification is an endorsement of the way of thinking. And it, it's my participation in the community. 
And this is a community that I think is, is very important. And the way the methodology is structured is very much in alignment with the other methodologies that I've gone through in the past with, with Six Sigma, especially with Christina, with, um, with Agile, frankly. The approach to problem solving is really important and having it be specific to something that is so scary for a lot of people. Um, it is a first step towards building that communal trust. And for me, I guess that's, I, I reflect on what I've been talking about. And for me, really, that's what it is. It's about building that relationship and solving the problem together and making sure that they understand that I've thought about a lot of these things that they should have think, thought about. I thought about the ethics and about the use, about the methodology, about which, how to select the right um, model, frankly. Those are things that we include in the cost of, of our engagement. And it's not, it's not an hour. I'm not going to spend an hour and give you an answer. If you wanted that, then you could probably look at a couple of parameters and some data and come to that on your own. The, the human brain is the best computer. You, you've got judgment experience to apply to it. But when the, when the problem is bigger than that, when the data are bigger than that, you need assistance. And that requires the science part of data. All right. And Charles, I know you wanted to also uh, chime in with an additional insight. Yeah, yeah. Um, Andrew actually triggered another thing, too, about the certification. There's, as a data scientist, it's very common um, to have a problem and it's, uh, create a solution or prediction for it. But it's a singular kind of ad hoc exercise where I've got one thing. Um, I took an algorithm, trained it, and I've got a model that's going to give me this result. And once I have that, I just move on to the next thing. Uh, I think that's common in the world of data science um, where uh, CPMI uh, comes in. And one of the reasons for the certification is changing that thinking a little bit um, for some of the data scientists to think about, well, once you solve the problem, what's the next step? Because um, from our perspective in Maximus, the problems are repetitive. You know, these are things that other people want to solve across the organization. And so once you've solved it once, it really um, should be, maybe it's a product or maybe it's something we have to deploy. And there are aspects of CPMI that help us think in that way to get, a, get away from thinking from an ad hoc one, one by one perspective, think bigger. So I can apply what I used for this one singular problem and apply it elsewhere to scale. All right, great insights. And KJ, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what was really the single most compelling reason or benefit for getting CPMAI certified. Uh, mine's pretty straightforward. I'm not a data scientist. <laughs> um, so obviously, I don't think it's a bad thing if you are in a role in uh, the data science engineering world where you're working with clients <clears throat> or facilitating projects or developing strategy, right? You can do all of those things and not be a data scientist. But what you can't do is not have a fundamental understanding of the work that they do. And right. so the C, I, I think the CPMAI does a really, really good job of giving that foundation. And in fact, um, I've been working with someone who's who's newly onboarding and, and not uh, familiar with data science. And so she is you know, learning some of that benefit from me, right? I'm able to more clearly articulate to her what data science mm -hmm. is, what we do with it, the seven patterns and all the things that we learned in the training. Um, I'm now able to convey some of that information to her to make her life easier. Um, and so 
you know, getting that background, that basis, getting a structure that makes more sense than traditional waterfall or wagile, God, let's hope not, um, you know, that's really uh, just a good foundation moving forward. And um, one thing I will say is that uh, you and I had gotten into this conversation about my passions with helping people get into the industry, uh, specifically women, but in general, people who don't have backgrounds in data science like me, who are afraid to get in because they feel like, oh, I, I don't even know what that is. That sounds uh, too, um, you know, to, to the point that was made earlier by Andrew, it sounds like Terminator. What's AI? Mm-hmm. They're going to come and get me. Oh my goodness. You know, and all these beautiful things, it allows you to get that foundation to make a transition when you have a lot of these other core skill sets around being able to, whether, whether it be management or facilitation or relationship skills, this gives you a basis um, to, to add to your knowledge set and be able to work with clients effectively. So um, yeah, again, it's just, I wanted the knowledge and it gave Mm -hmm. me more than what I was expecting, quite frankly. I agree. Well, that is very wonderful to hear. Um, you know, that that's what we hope as well, that people, uh, you know, and, and the reason I like that question is that people take, you know, many different things from CPMAI. So it's really great to hear your very different perspectives on that. Um, the next question that I have really talks about, you know, it's been great. We talked about some of the challenges, the insights, lessons learned that you've had, how you can apply CPMAI to help with, uh, you know, learning and, uh, you know, getting educated on best practices, how you can talk to different teams, make sure that everybody's on the same page, especially if many folks from your organization are CPMAI certified. Um, And before I move on, did anybody want to have any final thoughts on um, that last question? You know, just kind of what, what was in it for you? What, what did you feel that you gained either what you were expecting going into it and then um, coming out of it? No, I don't think so. Okay, perfect. Then I'll go ahead to the next question. Sorry, I thought somebody had. Um, So the next question really talks about, you know, what are some of the challenges that you see your organization facing when it comes to AI skills? I know we've we've talked about upon this a, a little bit throughout today's discuss, discussion, but really, what are you seeing as some of these core fundamental challenges? And Andrew, let's start with you. So I think it... It starts with the data, the access to the data, where it lives, what what structure is it in? Do we have access to it? Um, how do we make best use of it? How are we ethical about making use of the data? Uh, that that seems to be the biggest part of our conversation. Um, once you once you kind of solve that problem, it becomes which problem are we going to address first? Which one is most important to the business? Which which is the one that we can most clearly articulate the answer to? Um, and I think that's kind of where we are right now. We've we've got a a good set of data. We're focused on a, a few questions that are relevant to us. But people say data science, and it's a whole world of things. It's a whole lot of things that you could do. And so sometimes the question is, well, why aren't you doing that instead of this? So. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it comes back down to the to the technology, the data, um, the the problem to solve, and then building the trust with the people you're solving the problem with. I think those three things are are the biggest challenges for me. All right, and Charles, I'd love your thoughts on this. 
Yeah. Um, um, I fortunately, I or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, I share a lot of the same uh, of Andrew as we work on the same team. But um, to extract to, uh, to elaborate a little bit further, um, when we're we're evangelizing, we're evangelizing, you know, an emerging technology. So there are the natural challenges that come along with that, with getting people on board of using or or, or accommodating something new to solve problems. Um, it 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 does boil down to the main points that Andrew was saying, but um, we face that as we are evangelizing uh, some of these new solutions with um, stakeholders across the organization. So there, you know, like I said, it's it's when something's new, there's a change management perspective that um, that we have to sell in a way and manage um, as part of, with the stakeholders as part as getting this um, these things deployed. And of course, the number one thing is it's always data. Um, it's <laughs> 80 percent and money 80 if people i think it's 80 but i feel like it's 99 percent of the issue sometimes. agreed <laughs> <laughs> and kj do you have thoughts on this uh no i really just i couldn't give a thumbs up to your audience but yeah 90 i go with the 99 percent with charles on the data. <laughs> Yes, I, I don't think that people should underestimate, uh, you know, data at all. So, and and that's hopefully, you know, what they learn from this methodology and just, you know, working inside the organization. So we do have a lot of questions from the audience. Before I turn it over to that, um, I do want to just ask one more question. How do you see CPMAI certification helping grow key skills for both yourself and your team? I know that, uh, you know, some people, like I said, it's an individual certification. So some people just get certified. They may be, you know, one of a few people at their organization and others like Maximus have sent a very large number of folks through CPMAI. So KJ, we'll start with you. You know, how have you seen CPMAI certification really helping grow key skills in both yourself and your team? Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's really about having no having no data science background previously. It gave me a great foundation. It gave me, you know, a roadmap to kind of follow and compare to PMP, Lean, and Six Sigma. Um, and you know, just reiterating that we we do have a new team member onboarding, and so you know, I'm better able to articulate to her the work that we do um, and where you know she can. Um, maybe leverage this um, to in the future, right? Um, to really hone in on her knowledge base and uh, others as well. So it's a talent multiplier, if you will. Perfect. Um, and Andrew, I'd love your thoughts on this. I, I guess my thoughts are I'm not sure yet. Uh, it, it's new. Our our organization is young. And I think that we're still in the very early stages of how to build an organization that is trustworthy. Um, and I, I think that this is a really great roadmap to do that. And because we have we have um, committed to adopting this um, from an organization standpoint, um, to have very expensive calls with a lot of people on them to develop Maximus's own perspective of this framework, how it applies specifically to the business and the, the stakeholders that we work with. Um, says a lot about the 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 value of that rigorous framework. So yeah, I, I'm looking forward to answering that question, but I don't think I have an answer for you today. Okay. Um, and Charles, I'd love your thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I think um, yeah, if, uh, if I look at it from two perspectives. So like KJ was saying, when 
um, when you've got uh, non-technical folks in in this space, it sets it creates a foundation for them. And then also from a data science data scientist perspective, I think there's um, uh, there's a lot to learn. Even if you know the industry and understand it, there are some best practices to fall back on in terms of uh, deploying something at scale or understanding how this is. Like I said earlier, it's uh, getting away from that one ad hoc problem and understanding best practices for how you might uh, be able to scale it. So there is a benefit, I think, for both sides of the house from the business perspective and technical perspective. And then, um, like Andrew's saying, you know, we'll I think we'll an answer uh, more of this question um, organically as we uh, go along this journey as an organization. Perfect. So now I'm going to turn it over to audience questions. So I'm going to ask the question, throw it out there, whoever wants to chime in, um, please answer. The first question that we have says, how does AI and machine learning, how can it improve the effectiveness for different public services? And Maximus folks, I know that you work a lot with, uh, you know, the public sector. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, how you see AI and machine learning improving the overall effectiveness of the public sector. Yeah. So I, if I can chime in on this one, there, there's a significant amount, especially in the NLP space where we can use AI and ML to um, do some of the similar exercises you would have heard this applied to in the, in the realm of business where voice of the customer, for example, some of the underlying foundation for doing that exercise, market segmentation, can be applied in public service uh, from the way of understanding how maybe a program is affecting the public, what's the public's reaction to certain things, or trying to understand um, what Maybe, maybe from a disease perspective, you're trying to understand like the likelihood of a, of a future outbreak for like COVID, you know, we all just went through or still going through the pandemic, hopefully it's tailing off, but um, those, you can apply a lot of those things that you would see applied in a business setting, apply that same thing to a public, public setting, getting information about the public and how your program interacts with them to make uh, improvements or alter the um, approaches you might be uh, taking from a public perspective or public program perspective and just improve those going forward. So the, the, the government themselves are asking this question. Um, the, the CDC and their data modernization initiatives is asking this question, how can we apply new technologies to improve public policy? And how do agencies from the local tribal level all the way up to the federal level share information together in an ethical, responsible way to make broad decisions about bettering the culture, our way of life? And it's not an easy thing to ask, but they've at least begun to ask that question, which I, I think is remarkable. Yeah, you know, I mean, at, Cognit at Cognolytica, we have worked with the public sector for a number of years and it, at all different levels. So there's, you know, state and local, federal, and then international government as well. And I think that, um, they definitely are looking to see how AI can help and, you know, AI very broadly. So Charles, you had mentioned NLP and I, yes, I a hundred percent agree. We've seen a lot of chatbot implementations, how they can use that, how it's really helping um, and effectively moving them forward so that they can best serve their citizens and constituents with what they have. Um, 
So that is perfect. And I know KJ does have um, a little bit, she's a, a little under the weather, so I haven't been calling on her as much. But KJ, please do feel free to chime in if you have any um, answers that you'd like. Um, I don't want to feel like I'm ignoring you. And I want to just let the audience know as well that that's why I haven't been calling on you as much. But we do very much value your insights um, and your participation today. I appreciate it. <laughs> So the next question that we have says, how is CPMAI supporting improvement of growth and prosperity uh, for both, you know, public and private sector? That's a good one. So can you repeat that question one more time? How is CPMAI? Yeah. How is it supporting the improvement in growth and prosperity in businesses? So, you know, interpret that how you want. Maybe it's how are you using that to help? improve your, uh, you know, the way that you're running projects, the way that you're managing projects, how are, you know, I'll let you interpret that how you want. So I, I will talk about, again, a small question uh, related to how do agents talk to people who call us and what is the nature of that conversation? Um, so I'll focus on the agent side where we look at how the agent is interacting. We evaluate them. We give them scorecards. We have lots of data around that interaction. But one of the really cool things about that process is that the agent themselves has an opportunity to evaluate their supervisors. And there's a feedback loop there that helps us advance not just the agents themselves, but how we give them training. How do we engage them? How do we consider their work-life balance? Because if you've got happy agents, they're probably happier talking to people who are going to be happier talking to them and they're going to be able to answer the question more effectively. It, it all goes together. So if you've got a system that is um, punitive, which a scorecard very often is, um, that's one approach. But if you add to that this feedback loop of conversations, then the data supports that conversation. It isn't the conversation. It's a supporting tool for that conversation so that the, the, the culture evolves not just the one agent who may not be performing as well as they should be. So I, how does that translate into the overall prosperity and health of the world? I'm not sure, um, but I'm not going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on the small question that I can answer effectively and ethically and advance the, the one step at a time. And hopefully as all of us do that together through this kind of framework and way of thinking and way of approaching problems, then we together can do that as a community. I don't think any one of us can answer it simply. Well, maybe Skynet could. The, the way the way I think about that question is if I'm thinking at a macro scale. Um, so if, if we you know, we've answered some of these questions about how this how the methodology creates a foundation, especially for uh, on both sides, whether you're in the data science space or you're non-technical. But I, I think in the way that PMP or other uh, methodologies have helped everyone understand more about project management at a macro scale, I think this does a, has a similar effect. So when you talk about, I think, growth and prosperity, we can advance more um, at all levels in AI and ML, the more that we have a foundation that's spread and um, unified um, in a lot of ways that we see some of these other methodologies. And so there's that similar effect. I, I So the, like I said, at the macro scale, it 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 is like I think of it like a blanket covering everything, and it just allows everyone to be um, 
on the same page and understand some of the foundational aspects and thus it moves um and yeah. farther um because of that you know again at the, at a macro scale that um you know growth and prosperity that's the way that's the way i see it i hope i hope i answered that question <laughs> it's a great question and it's one that we should consider how how does the work i do uh, affect my community affect my culture my my larger family yeah. And um, I know, you know, we've had conversations with others as well. And I think especially when you are serving the public sector, but private as well, you know, you really need to be asking that question because sometimes we can get so fixated with data and users. And at the end of the day, we we can forget that it's actual human beings that we're talking mm-hmm. about here. Um, KJ, I know you want to chime in as well. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so what people, I, I think, folks don't often think of when it comes to health insurance companies uh, like Centene is that we are focused on serving and helping the members that we serve. Everybody thinks of, oh, well, I go to a doctor, I get a claim, you know, that's basically what we do, right? But at the end of the day, this type of technology, this type of um, analysis allows us to identify members that need extra help. Right. So when we talk about helping the world, um, you know, we are talking about starting small as as we do in the methodology. Right. Start small and then it rolls. And so what happens when you have and, and this is, you know, a very real world problem. What happens when you have people who are not um, adhering or are not taking, let's say they're not taking medication or they're not going to the doctor, or they're not doing things to take care of their health because they can't afford it. They have some other reason why, um, you know, in our space, we call it social determinants of health. You know, what happens if, you know, they don't have a vehicle to get there. They don't have um, groceries. They don't have money for groceries or, you know, whatever. And so by being able to utilize the technology to help us identify some of those members or members that are, have a high likelihood of falling into those categories um, where they have other items, or, or I should say, you know, other factors that are taking away from their ability to take care of themselves, we can then identify them and properly help them because even as a health insurance company, and this is all health insurance companies have programs where we team up with the government sector. We team up with the groups that have um, grants, that have loans, that have all these other, you know, facilities and, and all these other avenues for people to go down to get what they need to make their lives better. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I kind of laugh um, because I was one of the people that looked at big insurances. Well, you're the devil, <laughs> you know, lots of people like to use that phrase. But in reality, um, you know, whether you do still think that or not, those are some of the things that big insurance do is we try to help our members by identifying, you know, what they need outside of just regular routine care, what's affecting the reason why they can't get their routine care and maintain their health. So I like to think of my job as being a little altruistic that, you know, we are helping the world um, in one small way. Yeah. And, you know, that, that is great insight. So thank you for sharing. The next question that we have says, is it CPMAI supporting development skills for work in conditions of digital and virtual technological revolution of Corona and post-Corona era? Yes. (laughs) Simple. Can can you repeat the question again? Is it CPMAI supporting development skills for work in conditions of digital and virtual technical uh, corona and post-corona era? 
hundred percent. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Charles, I don't know if you were going to comment. I didn't yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I'm, I was, it was a long question. So I'm trying to still put it together. I mean, if it's a simple yes, no question, I agree. Um, I'm trying to think, see, trying to think beyond that to see if there's an elaboration, but yeah, I, I, I think it is a yes, a yes, no. All right. Perfect. And if you'd like to come back to that, if you have some thoughts, you just let me know. So the next question that we, we, you know, we didn't, we talked about data, I mean, obviously, but not a lot about data. So how are you dealing with data quality challenges? All the time. (laughs) That's how we're dealing with it. It, It's a constant question. Is it complete? Is it accurate? Um, Especially when you're talking about a, a machine listening to a conversation and making words on a, on a transcript out of it. Um, and then interpreting that in aggregate with the very abstract way people talk about things. So um, it, it, it's always one of the first questions that you ask. How do I handle the quality of this data? How do I um, evaluate it um, in such a way that lets me be confident in the models that I'm applying to the data, because those things go very well in hand. If you've got really bad data, you can have the most beautiful algorithm and model and, and a team of data scientists looking at it and, th- and making decisions. And then you send the rocket to Mars instead of to the moon because your data is bad. Yeah, I think, yeah, there's there's two aspects when I think about quality. There's quality that I can affect at the individual data scientist level, and then this quality that I can affect at a macro scale. So it, to, answer, to answer that question for both of those scenarios is um, simply, you know, we do things like um, we try to have data governance exist and um, take approaches um, in general for the applications and data that we're interacting with. And then at a data scientist level, um, we have a set of practices, uh, especially in pre-processing when, Mm -hmm. like Andrew was saying, with some of these uh, transcriptions we deal with, um, we have a a set um, method of steps that we go through so that when we're we're pre-processing, we've got a consistent um, quality that comes through with that, removing some of the stop words, which is sounds obvious, but it gets us to a simplistic point. Then um, reducing the words to um, like sp- their their root, more or less. And so through that process, we're getting uh, a consistent out. Uh, we're, what we're getting is um, something reduced that's fit for use. But because we've gone through a, the same amount of steps for. Uh, uh, in general, for this data scientist, we, we're trying to ensure quality at that level, at a micro level. So it's it's two ways. And then there's there's always data quality that you've got to deal with. There's always a corner case, um, you know, on a on an ad hoc basis. You've got to deal with that depending on what it is. And I see that again as part of the pre processing, or if it's properly as part of our BI stack, you know, we would handle that kind of thing in ETL. All right. Yeah. You know, it's it's important. I mean, not all data is created the same. And so you can have data, uh, you know, quality issues just because some of the data that you're collecting may be noisy, may be bad. Um, KJ, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this as well. I was just going to reiterate what Charles said as far as uh, upstream and BI. I think it's really important. Um, well, I'm not a data scientist, right? So I can't fully answer that question from the downstream impact. From an analysis standpoint um, and from a business side, um, concepts like data labeling, I think, are important to surface, right? Upstream. 
um, just so that we can improve where it's coming from and what it is we're trying to get out of it. So um, yeah, just really thinking about if, if you are a business user or, you know, you're looking to implement um, any systems that where you'd have that data, in, but you want to think about the structure and what you're capturing, um, not just for the sake of capturing it. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, you know, and I know that um, in addition to this, we also run a podcast, the AI Today podcast, and both Charles and KJ have been guests. So I encourage you to check out their interviews if you're interested. We'll have to get Andrew on as well. Okay. Um, and we talk about one of our, we have an AI failure series, which is incredibly popular. And some of, you know, because the a lot of people don't talk about common reasons that they see projects fail. And you can learn just as much, if not more, from the failures mm-hmm. than you can from the successes. So we thought it was important to highlight that. And one of them was data quality issues. Another one was data quantity issues, you know, so how much data do you need? And then how, what's the quality of the data? Because you don't want to, you know, um, Andrew had mentioned, you don't want garbage in is garbage out, right? So you don't want to put bad data into the system just to put data into the system. You have to be paying attention to that too. So really great insights from everybody. The next question that we, oh yes, absolutely. Chime in. Two more things. Um, Big things, especially when we're working with government, is the security of the data storage. How do we care for that? Um, and then the personal information, especially if we're having conversations about things like health insurance or a Medicare claim. How do we care for that data? And we carve that question out as its own body of work, um, not into a specific problem, but into the how do we pre-process these conversations before we do anything else? It's that important to us to make sure that we care for that data in that way. That also helps us talk to our stakeholders about it and build that trust again. We care about this data just as much as you do, and we will we will treat it with as much care as you would yourself. Perfect. Um, all right, so the next question that we have says, what is the value of training versus standardizing a method versus a certification? Training versus standardizing a method versus certification. Right. So, you know, are you, you know, when, when you think about training, what does that mean to you versus maybe what does a certification mean? Because training is just kind of, you know, learning, maybe some education, but a certification means that you've actually been certified on that methodology and then maybe standardizing a method as well. Cause you know, we had talked about how you can adopt maybe a few different methods uh, and methodologies into projects that you have. So. Yeah. And right off the bat, instinctually, I think of crawl, uh, walk, run, where I think training is like crawling. And then um, the certification is like walking. And then um, what was the last one? I'm sorry. Um, Standardization. Standardization where standardization Mm -hmm. is running. So it's like a level of mastery in a way. So, you know, once you've learned to walk, you've kind of mastered the basics. And I think that's the certification. And then in order to standardize something, and to the way I, when I hear standardize, I think of scaling. And so in order to scale, you really have to prove mastery of the things you learned. That's why you have to walk before you run. And so that, that's, that's the way I think if that, if that, I hope that answers the question that it's a difference, it's a difference of levels of mastery. And if you can standardize and scale, then suffice it to say, you've definitely learned um, and, and mastered the things that you would uh, quantify as certified. I think it's also about, um, the interactions we have with each other. 
So from a training perspective, that's very individual. It's very self-centered. Certification gives you credibility and gives you a common way to think about things, to talk about things. It gives you a community of people who have gained that same certification. The standardization is when your organization itself begins to learn and to move and think and talk about things in the same way and have that discipline of problem solving together. Um, so I, I think it's an evolution from one to the next, as Carl said. I don't think it's it's one thing or the other. I don't you you need all of those ultimately. All right, really great insights there. Uh, so the next question that we have says, how do you create a collaborative environment on projects between the technical and the non-technical teams? Yeah, that 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 has. I don't know if there is a real if there is a real uh, methodology to that. There's, <laughs> there's not an easy there, answer. There, there, there is no KJ has However, one. <laughs> I can tell you that the bottom line is you have to make the effort to communicate. Yeah. Communicate number one. That's always my thing in leadership is over communication, and uh, two. Um, did I already say that you have to make the effort? Because number two is you have to make the effort um, and bring the stakeholders along to make them um, uh, have them be active contributors in in the project. And, you know, there is there is also a person dependency in those interactions where yeah. there's an EQ aspect with the person you can all you could you could tell someone who is just very terrible in or very, very low in the EQ area, maybe very high in IQ, but you tell them to create a partnership with a stakeholder and that might be difficult. So that's why I say that it's not really a thing where um, maybe it could be psychologically, you can come up with a set of best practices for, for creating those relationships, but it is a function of putting in the effort um, and then uh, enabling uh, and, and, and empowering the stakeholders to feel like they're contributing to the project. And then, of course, on, as the, like I said, as the on a person to person level, there is a dependency there about um, things like EQ and how you can how you develop relationships. And it is a skill that um, not everyone has. It, you know, it can be learned, of course. And that's something that's important, I feel like, if you want to build partnerships. Perfect. And KJ, uh, I know you have some thoughts on this. So I think it's really two words and as simple as this answer is going to be, and some people might not like me for saying this, it's transparency and authenticity. That's really it. That's the bottom line of building relationships. I don't, you know, I, I don't want to say I don't care, but I really don't care if you are technical, if you are non-technical or somewhere in between at the end of the day, people are people are humans, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more authentic you can be about who you are, the more transparent you can be about what it is that you're doing or what the expectations are and really following through with them, right? Don't promise things that you can't deliver. If you don't think you can do something, be honest about it, be transparent. Yeah. Or if you're questioning whether or not you can do something, right? Um, and that applies to when you're working with business, technical, or both. It really, it just boils down to um, people don't want to be left in the dark. So again, going back to that, you know, psychology thinking where people fill in the gaps, don't let them fill in the gaps, be transparent. So that question is my job description, actually. Uh, and we need I, I often, can I can vouch for that. I yeah, can vouch that for is that. what I do. And we often talk about the business side and the technical side, but there's this third group of people, which I'm a part of, that is kind of the translators. 
um, the the hand holders, the dot connectors, the the tier leaders, um, the the different perspectives and different ideas, people, and that is uh, it, it's its own body of work, and it's a it's a singular skill set, and um, I've been deliberate about learning how to talk to people and be nice and to be the collaborative guy instead of the one solving the problem by himself in the corner. And yes, it can be learned, but you have to do it intentionally and you have to recognize that both perspectives are really good. You have a brilliant model that's got lots of data that gives an answer, but then you've got a brilliant human being that has the best computer in the world in their head. And those two things go together. They're not oppositional if you do it right. Andrew, if I may piggyback on something that you said about people being a computer, right? You've got the best computer in your mind ever built. Um, and, and the fact that some people are more in that nature versus like what you would consider, uh, like Charles said, that EQ, the interpersonal type, mm-hmm. you know, relationship people. Um, I, I don't know how to say this gently, so I'm just going to say it, right? Um admit your faults, right? Yeah. If you are not, if you are not an interpersonal person, right? At, at that, that was say that five times fast, right? <laughs> interpersonal person. If you're not that person, if you are a more reserved person or you speak up less likely or, or whatever the case may be, again, transparency and honesty go a long way with people, sure. right? Um, I, I could just as easily sit here and pretend to be some expert in, in literally anything and everything. But at the end of the day, people will feel it. Right. So I've always loved that phrase about no one will remember what you said, but they will remember how you feel or how you made them feel rather. Mm -hmm. And so if, you know, for example, I've sat in meetings and I can't tell you how hard I've laughed because I have a colleague of mine for many years who literally gets on calls and he says, I am not a people person. Like that's, that's his intro. I am not a people person. I am a technical guy. I am not a people person. I am very direct, blunt, and straight to the point. Mm -hmm. So please don't take offense to anything I say. It's just how I communicate. And when you level set with people and you are transparent with people, again, it doesn't matter who you're talking to. It just matters that you're honest and they feel that. End of story. Yeah. One One of my colleagues from years ago, early in our forming the team, she said, Andrew, I don't like people. I don't really even like you. I don't want to talk to people. You go talk to people and figure (laughs) out what they want. And you come tell me and maybe I'll do it for you. Yeah. And she was brilliant. And a lot of the data scientists that I know are extremely introverted. They're very thoughtful. Mm -hmm. They're very um, quiet people. Mm. And to expect that kind of person to then go and talk translate their very particular science into language that somebody who is not a data scientist can understand, that's a big ask. And I think that it, it's more than they should be expected to do, to do, quite frankly. So that, again, that's my job description. That's what I enjoy so much to do. I wonder how many people just laughed at that explanation about your boss telling you, I don't even like you. But that's a great, but right there, that was a great yeah. example of, Hey, I don't even like you. I don't like people, but it, it brings people's guard down to understand where you're coming from. Right. Once we figured that out, we, we decide who's going to do what and how we're going to work together. And we were a great team in that way. Um, 
it's the very same thing when we come back to the transparency question about this framework. What does the model do? What are the risks? Where are the confidence intervals? What stats did you use to determine its efficacy and its application? If you talk about those things and say, this model can do one thing, but it's not going to do these other things, that's the very same kind of conversation. And that's, a, again, an, another way to build trust and understanding. And common understanding, because we, we do the math for a stakeholder, and very likely they're going to go out and talk about it to other people and use it and justify their decisions with that math. So if you're not aligned in what it can and can't do from the science to the, to the answer to the question, then danger, danger, Will Robbins, all over the place. There's so many ways to misinterpret and misuse and, and get it wrong. And in some cases, it could be quite dangerous. Perfect. Well, this segues right into our next question as well. And it says, how can non-IT or non-data scientist project managers get into the data-centric PM career? Do you have any career advice for them? As far as people who are coming from like a PM space or less like data science um, type role, there's a couple of different things you can do. I mean, one, I think the the sort of this certification is a great one, right? To learn um, the basics, to be able to articulate and demonstrate knowledge um, to the people you're interviewing with. And so, I'm not saying go in there. And, and I would never recommend lying. I would never recommend pretending to be something you're not. Right? Transparency is everything. What I recommend you doing is saying, "Look, here are my hard skill sets. Here are the soft skill sets that I have, and I've gone and invested in this training to." learn more about your industry and how you work. Um, here are some of the things that I learned and how it translates, right? It will help you answer those questions so that someone would maybe want to take a chance on you not having that background. <clears throat> but the other thing is to right? network. I, I know everybody says network, network, network. Well, what a lot of folks recommend is that you network with executives, you network with managers, you network with all these people that are super busy and probably don't even have time to shower in the morning. Um, you know, and, and so it can be difficult to get on calendars and to talk to people, but networking should not be limited to people who you think could do something for you, but rather people that you can work with in any capacity, right? So you might have somebody who's not a manager, who's not a director, who's not whatever, um, be willing to chat with you just about something like this, a forum like this, like, hey, what do you see in the project management world? Or, um, you know, I heard that you know someone and I would love to just talk to you and learn more about what you do. So that gives you an entry point to understand, right? And to really learn if, if it's in the area that you want to go to, it'll help you learn about that. Um, but at the end of the day, right, don't treat people by their title. Some of, yeah. you know, without expecting in my life, without ever expecting anything, I've connected with people and kept them in my network and just, hey, I just want to talk to you. And one day they're an administrative assistant. Next thing I turn around, they're a VP. And I'm like, holy cow, like, when did that happen? And I'm getting calls, you know, eight, nine, 10 years down the road asking me, hey, KJ, you know, I remember you saying you have experience with something. Can you help me? Right. So network, talk to people and, you know, seek out education that will help you bridge the gap and to show you to, for you to be able to demonstrate what skill sets you have that are valuable for that area. Yeah, that's great. And I guess, you know, where would you recommend people network and 
especially in this COVID era. I mean, everywhere, (laughs) every opportunity you get, um, you could be at the grocery store chatting somebody up. You could be on LinkedIn. Um, Kathleen, I did put in the, in the chat that people are, you know, feel free to look me up, chat with me, send me a message, be like, Hey, KJ, I would love to get your thoughts on some things. Um, and I, at one point, hmm, I don't know if I should share the story when I was trying to get into WellCare now Centene, I had been trying for 10 years. I couldn't get an interview. I came from banking. I had zero healthcare experience. Nobody wanted to talk to me. So I did the stalkery thing and I went on LinkedIn and I looked at my entire network of people who had connections or worked for the company. And I literally just, I I signed up for LinkedIn premium. I sent the messages and I said, Hey, um, you know, it might be a little weird that I'm reaching out of the blue, but I really want to get to know about your company. Excuse me. Um, And out of, uh, gosh, I must have sent 40 or so emails via LinkedIn. One person responded back to me, one out of 40. But that just goes to show you that it only took one because it was that one person that was a VP. By the way, I had not been looking at his title. I didn't care. It was just hey, I, I want to get to know about your company. He was a VP who happened to be leaving the company and I didn't know that until a month later. And he's the one that got me in for my first interview to a role that he said to me, listen, I know you're way overqualified, but the strategy here is to get you in front of people. I want them to see how great you are and why your your um, talents can transfer to the work that we do. Wow. And from there, one of the people said to me on the way out of the interview, you were way overqualified for this, but I've got an idea sit tight. And next thing you know, that was my first role. Her former role became my first role at the company. And now three and a half years later, I've jumped four levels. So it it just proves to you that, right, you don't know where those connections are going to come from or who's going to be willing to open up and help you or for you to help them. So I'm glad that you talked about the people side of that question, because I I really can't do that. I'm, I'm basically a recluse that talks to people on the phone in the day. I think that um, the perception of data science is that it's this big, horrible, scary thing that only a few people can do. And I don't think that's the case. Different from uh, a more specialized things like neuroscience or surgery or rocket building, you can educate yourself. You can learn the language. You can, you can read, you can download free open software to solve problems. You can get publicly available data. Dive in, go train yourself. The, the methodology will give you all of the, the kind of areas that you can explore. Take one that's interesting to you and go solve a problem. Learn the language so that when you sit down and talk to people about a new role, you've at least got a, a foundation to start with. Um, chances are you're a problem solver. That's all this is. It's a it's a it's a system to solve problems. It's just using tools under the language of data science, which sounds scary. Yeah, you know, so specifically too, I mean, it's great. I always love to hear how people network, what you're doing, advice that you have, because I think that obviously, I mean, on this panel and just the people that are watching in general, people have different personalities. Some people are more open to rejection than others. You know, KJ, when you reach out to 40 people and only one of them gets back to you, 
39 people did not. Not everybody handles that type of rejection well. Andrew That's said true. he's a recluse, right? Yeah. But some do. So maybe Andrew's like, no way, I couldn't handle no, that. I'm not rejection. doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, relentless. I'm a little relentless, but yeah. Yeah, but some people, you're like, you know what? I don't look at it as 39 people that didn't get no. back to me. I look at it as one person that the did. One. Yes. That's, yeah. So hey, Albert Einstein and all them, what is it? How many <laughs> times did it take? Uh, not Albert Einstein. Um Oh my goodness. Why am I drawing a blank? But how many times did it take to invent a light bulb? Well, it only took one, one. a thousand failures. And it took one with Thomas Edison. Thank you. My brain yes. is. Well, and, the, the, and the other guy that actually developed it before Thomas Edison <laughs> got it. Yeah. So maybe twice, like, like the calculus and New- Newton and the other guy that nobody knows. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so uh, with that question, and uh, we may go a few minutes over. We have a few more audience questions to get to. This has been an incredible, incredible conversation that I don't want to wrap up, but I know we need to soon. So you had talked about, you know, where specifically, because Andrew, you said that you read, uh, you know, different things. So where can we find people like you? You know, what what are you guys reading? Where are you networking? What events are you going to? Where are you connecting? And, um, you know, how can others kind of do that as well? So I, I can talk about places to go learn, but not really the networking stuff, especially over the past couple of years. The, the, the idea of networking and conferences and that kind of thing is just gone. I don't even think about it anymore. So um, there are really interesting, good websites. Um, Kegel.com is, is one that has, they, they like run little competitions and say, I've got this problem to solve. Here's the data go get a team together and figure it out. And then they evaluate the thing. And sometimes they get jobs or get money for solving those kind of problems. And sometimes it's just to learn. So there, there are, you want to go learn Python? There's a guy on YouTube that does like five minute videos. He's, he's really great. I'm just going to teach you how to do an ANOVA today in Python. Here's the code. Here's the data. Go do it. Bye. Um, so there are a lot of very um, good resources online for us that that are free and that are self-paced that that will help you solve the problem. Yeah, I, I would say I um, there isn't really a particular place um, that I would say for networking other than like the usual place. You know, you think of LinkedIn or meetup groups. I think um, meetup groups are good if that's still a. I haven't gone to one since pre-COVID, so um, <laughs> but I did go to a few of them, especially like SQL Server and, and BI-related ones back, you know, a while back. Uh, another thing is I actually network quite a bit in my everyday hobbies. Um, I just happen to have hobbies that for some reason have people who are in the same engineering type field. So, like for example, um, I powerlift, and for some reason, the powerlifting community has a lot of people who think about progression and strength very scientifically and they happen to have engineering backgrounds at least this anecdotally to me and it i just happen to be people who are in the same industry that do have the same hobby i don't know how that's just a, a thing you know i don't know and then uh, you know i have some other hobbies too where um uh like i also play poker where we study a lot about game theory and of course naturally there's a lot of ai and ml um uh, that gets applied there. So there's naturally a lot of networking that goes on, especially considering I'm in the industry and there's others who use those tools to better, um, you know, their, their, their approaches to the game in general. So just in every day, every day, um, there's always an opportunity. So, um, you know, don't, 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 uh, turn it down when, when it appears. 
So one thing I do do, especially at work, is I find people that may not know each other that think the same way that are trying to solve the same kind of problem, and I introduce them. And I, I think KJ made the comment on, on our chat that having a warm transfer is really interesting. In fact, I did this a couple of weeks ago with a couple of our leaders where they, they have similar teams. They solved problems in the same way. They One had a new capability, and I brought them together, and I just let them talk. And and it, it, I think that that's a really important thing for me to do as a leader here is to make sure that we've got people in the organization talking to each other um, yeah. across teams. I definitely agree. It's great that you're doing that, actually. Not everybody does. And I think that there's a lot to learn, right? I mean, you're a giant organization and you can be very siloed and you're, you know, mm-hmm. people have a lot to learn from each other and you are one organization, right? Going towards one common mission, one common goal. You're not competing against each other. So learn from each other, grow with each other, right? Rather than against yeah. each other. So that's really great to hear that you're doing that. Um, KJ did need to drop, but she typed in her answer. So I want to read that before we wrap up. And thanks for sticking with us. I know we're a few minutes over. Uh, KJ said her answer to this is she networks on LinkedIn, also employee groups at your organization. I know that she's part of some employee groups at her organization. And, you know, if if there's opportunity, see if you can get in no matter, you know, uh, how you need to do that. Also, people you speak to on a daily basis. So Charles, like you said, that was really great. You know, you bring in your kind of non-professional networking and somehow make it work for a professional environment. Uh, Don't be afraid to ask people you know if they can introduce you to somebody else. She hates getting rejected too. I don't know anybody that loves getting rejected. Some people just handle it better than others. Um, So if you can get kind of that warm intro rather than just sending that cold email, it's a lot easier to make that meaningful connection. I know from experience, it's a lot easier. People, uh, you know, they're like, okay, we have this common connection that I respect. So I'm going to take this phone call with you. So um, I, we didn't have time to get to everybody's questions. I want to thank everybody though, for asking the questions. This was such an incredible session. I'm so happy that everybody was able, uh, you know, to attend and be so engaged. The panelists, you were amazing. Before I wrap up, um, I'm going to pull up, uh, slides for a screen share just to wrap up a few things. But bef- while I'm doing that, I'd like to, um, let you have any final parting words or comments for the audience today. Um, not, nothing too, too long, but I appreciate the opportunity, you know, thanks for the questions. Um, and I hope this is informative and, you know, takes you forward on, on whatever the journey is. Uh, agreed. I, I very much appreciate you listening to me rant and rave about things that I'm very passionate about. Clearly, I think just having the conversation is such a big first step having a structured, rigorous, disciplined conversation that has science and thought against it makes it even easier and better to do. So as long as we keep having that conversation, I think that we will eventually advance the the society, um, as one of the, the questioners said. All right, perfect. Yeah, so we hope you really enjoyed that panel. As mentioned, the panel was an excerpt of our Enterprise Data and AI web series event. Specifically, it's the Best Practices in AI Project Management event from September 1st, 2022. You can go on to cognolytica.com and go into our Enterprise Data and AI event series. 
and uh, look at that event so you can watch the people if, you, if you're interested. And as mentioned, uh, our moderator was my co-host for AI Today, Kathleen Walsh, a managing partner at Cognolytica. And our panelists were Charles Mendoza, Senior Director of Operational Analytics and Data Science at Maximus, who has actually since moved on to another job at CircleCI, and Christine Jennings, uh, K, who goes by KJ, who is the Project Lead Business Systems Analyst at Centene Corporation, and Andrew Stone, who is a lead specialist and product owner of data science at Maximus as well. So we hope you enjoyed it, and uh, maybe you'll see the event and, if, and reach out to us if there's anything else that's of interest to you. We have some really interesting podcasts we've recorded on the Glossary series, so stay tuned to that as you learn more about some of the key terms and terminology for AI and data science. So we've got a lot of great content. Please make sure to subscribe and stay connected to AI today. And have us be part of your community and you could be part of our community. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also, subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica, all rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. <laughs>